The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Exodus 20, 8-11, and Hebrews 4, 9-11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Amen, it is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, we come now with ready hearts, uh, thankful that you have given us your word. Uh, Lord, we pray now that you would give us grace to see that where we fail, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, on our behalf mightily prevails, for we ask it in his precious name. The seed who crushed the serpent's head and the Alpha and Omega, amen. Well, my daddy uh, used to run Filson's Amico on 231 North Cumberland Street in Lebanon, Tennessee. Uh, from the age of nine until I left for college, I, I worked with him, I waited on the front. Those are the days when you had to fill up people's cars and check their oil and air up their tires and all those sorts of things. Then I started doing light mechanic work, doing some brake jobs, a little bit of tune up, that kind of thing. Don't trust me with your car, I'll totally screw your car up, I promise you that. But that's what I did back then, my daddy worked hard. Uh, he'd open the station at 7 a.m. and he would close at 5 p.m. every day except for Fridays. He would close up at 4.30. He'd come home early, he'd clean up, and we as a family would head west, young man. We would go toward the western horizon down I-40 to that entertainment epicenter, that, that commercial industrial enterprise known as Donaldson, Tennessee. Donaldson, Tennessee had things we didn't have in Lebanon, Tennessee. It had a Bonanza Steakhouse. It had a Zares. It had a Kmart. Things I had never seen before in Lebanon. Planes coming in, landing taking off, and just over the horizon, the city skyline of Nashville, Tennessee, I would tell myself, someday, someday I'm going to go see that city. Someday I'm going to go there. For anyone who would be willing to just trudge a little further westward, oh my goodness, it was an incredible thing. Friday nights had everything you could possibly want. Some Friday nights, I would even get to bring home a, a new toy or a, a book or something like that. Everything was there for the having. We would eat. We, we would buy. It was a weekly rhythm of knowing that all we might need and want was there for the having. Uh, any of you remember book fairs in elementary school back in the day? Remember book fairs? I, I remember uh, book fairs. I feel the thrill of that day when I walked into first grade there at McLean Elementary School 
in Lebanon, Tennessee, books spread all over the tables. And it was just one a copy of each so that you could preview each book and see what you wanted to, uh, see what you wanted to order. You take your order form home. I, I did that. I, I chose three books. There was one on Frankenstein, one on Dracula, and one on Sylvester and Tweety. I put that order form in the envelope with hard, cold cash money. Took it back to my teacher and she said, oh, David, soon, soon these books will be here for you. And sure enough, eight weeks later, <laughs> eight weeks later, I uh, walked into that serendipitous reality of book delivery day having arrived. All those books spread out on the tables and there was a little stack of three with my name on it. I, I even have here from my second grade book fair, dog stories. Um, Oh, goodness gracious. It was, it was like um, a, a taste of what C.S. Lewis called sinsut, that German word for a longing so deep and so real that you feel that you can't express. Sinsut. <laughs> where do you get a case of the once? Where, where do you get a, a case of the once? Is it a used bookstore? How many of you love a used bookstore? It's the thrill of the hunt, isn't it? It's the thrill of the hunt. Um, any of you collect vinyls in here? You ever been to Vintage Vinyl in St. Louis or maybe Grimey's or Great Escape here in town? You love to collect vinyls. Where do you get a case of the once? Do any of you escape filling up your cart, shoe shopping on, on Amazon? Or maybe it's REI or, or Bass Pro or Home Depot or Guitar Center or Dick's Sporting Goods. Maybe it's uh, Target. Do you get a case of the wants as soon as you are one of the chosen ones bequeathed with that ineffable sense of privilege when one of those angels in matching t-shirts beckons you enter the inner sanctum of the Apple store at Green Hills Mall? You know the feeling, right? You know the feeling. You get a case of the wants. You just start to, you just start to taste desire coming all over you. Where do you get a case of the wants? You know, the, the Puritans, uh, generally speaking, were men and women who took the intersection of Scripture and life uh, passionately, seriously. So, so think about uh, people in Scotland and England and Ireland back in the, in the 15 and 16, uh, early 1700s. They, they just took Scripture and, and, and its intersection with life so seriously. It was actually hard drinking, hard living, hard hearted, but brilliant and fascinating Baltimore journalist, social critic and satirist H.L. Mencken, who lived from 1880 to 1956, who said, Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. <laughs> now, listen, they, they were serious about obeying God, perhaps a little too introspective at points, a bit too austere here and there. And yet, they experienced and they felt an intimacy with Jesus, often expressed in language that is so effervescently romantic that sometimes it sounds like the script of a Hallmark rom-com. Um, Puritan Samuel Rutherford lived from 1600 to 61. Listen to what Rutherford says. Scotsman, oh, as a Scotsman, oh, what a fair one. What an only one, what an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Jesus. But the beauty of 10,000, thousand worlds of paradise, like the Garden of Eden in one, put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one, and yet it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. 
In his book, The Loveliness of Christ, Rutherford says, every day we may see some new thing in Christ. His love has neither brim nor bottom. I love that. The love of Jesus has neither brim nor bottom. How blessed are we to enjoy this invaluable treasure, the love of Christ, or rather allow ourselves to be mastered and subdued in his love so that Christ is our all and all other things are nothing. Oh, that we might be ready for the time our Lord's wind and tide call for us. There are infinite plies in his love that the saint will never be able to unfold. I urge upon you a nearer and growing communion with Christ. There are curtains to be drawn back in Christ that we have never seen. There are new foldings of love in Jesus. Dig deep, sweat, labor, and take pains for Jesus and set by as much time in the day for him as you can. He will be one with labor. Live on Christ's love. Christ's love is so keenly that it will not wait until tomorrow. It must have a throne all alone in your soul. It is our folly to divide our narrow and little love. It is best to give it all to Christ. Lay no more on the earthly than it can carry. Lay your soul and your weights upon God. Make him your only and best beloved. Your errand in this life is to make sure an eternity of glory for your soul and to match your soul with Christ. Your love, if it could be more than all the love of angels in one, would be Christ's due. Look up to him and love him. Oh, love and live. Now we can smirk at that kind of sentiment, but it's probably only because we find it uncomfortably unfamiliar. Or maybe we can hit pause and say, I wonder if I could ever feel that way about Jesus. I wonder if I could ever feel that way about Christ. And how could Pastor Rutherford feel this way about Christ, especially when following Christ wound him up in prison in Aberdeen, separated from his, his flock at Anwath? Well, one reason, one major trajectory-setting programmatic roots to the branches, sap to the vines reason is because those folks couldn't wait for Sundays to roll around every week. Sunday had all the things spread out before them. Everything they could need or want was spread before them on the day that they called the Lord's Day, the market day of the soul. The market day of the soul. And I'm curious, what, is, what does Sunday mean uh, for you? What, what does Sunday mean for you? In fact, one of the things about Rutherford that's interesting that broke his heart was that when he was in prison and he was not able to be with his church preaching and ministering to his church, he spoke of them as his, his uh, mute Sundays where he couldn't speak and he was in prison. And he, and he said, these, these Sundays when I can't be with my church break my heart in half. These Sundays when I cannot speak to my church and cannot be with them in worship is like a stone tied to a bird's foot. Now, here's the truth. We all uh, similarly are dependent upon something, similarly are longing for something, devoted to something the way Rutherford was to Jesus. And, and often the very way that we view time flows from that devotion, and it flows back into that devotion that we have. Uh, Sundays in our lives belong to God or any number of other gods that we have wittingly or unwittingly allowed to just come in and, and take up residence in our lives. So in order to think about what does Sunday mean to you, mean to me, maybe we need to ask the question, what does Sunday mean biblically? What, what does Sunday mean? And, and before we jump headlong into that, I want to tune our hearts 
lawward, if I may so say. Now, you may be tempted to, to think, okay, hey, hey, isn't there a verse somewhere in Hebrews 4 that says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath? So that, does, that, that command doesn't apply to us anymore. Well, here's the reality, y'all. Jesus fulfilled all of the Ten Commandments for us. Are we to then assert that none of the Ten Commandments uh, have any relevance in our lives? Well, well of course not. Uh, he fulfilled all the law on our behalf so that we might de- be declared positionally righteous in the sight of God. And now, out of loving gratitude, uh, we, we live our lives in, in practical righteousness before the face of our satisfied Father. Now, maybe some of us are thinking, well, wait a second. Um, we're about grace here, not law. The Christian life isn't about do's and don'ts. And in fact, isn't there a verse somewhere in the Bible about we're not under law anymore? Well, yeah, look with me, if you will, at, at Romans chapter 6. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Now, I'm going to go ahead and let you all know um, we're going to get some Presbyterian air conditioning going on in here. We're going to get some pages fanning in these Bibles. So grab one and uh, let's, let's buckle up because we're going to go. Back up to verse 12, Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What Paul is saying there is that the law of, he's not saying that the law of God has no relevance in our lives. He is saying that now that we are under the grace of God after the resurrection of Christ, sin cannot dominate us. The law of God had the power to expose our sin. Grace has the power to rescue us from our sin. And so what grace does is it reminds us that sin will never condemn you. It will never dominate you. And that same grace that assures us of those gospel promises fuels our desire and our joyful happiness in loving and living out the law of God. In fact, why do we not read that in Psalm 19? Turn there, if you will. Psalm 19, a precious chapter. In some ways, Psalm 19 is kind of like the cliff notes on Psalm 119, where you see the psalmist's love affair with the Word of God. And in Psalm 19, we read, David say, beginning in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. In Psalm 119, verse 32, the psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Understand this, beloved, the law of God is a wide open space of freedom for those whose hearts are being held and healed by the hand of God. Psalm 119, the the largest psalm, the largest chapter in all the Bible is the psalmist's love affair with the Word of God. The very first verse I memorized as a child was Psalm 119, 96 or 46. I will speak of your testimony also before kings and I will not be put to shame. And then I I remembered and I memorized verse 96 of Psalm 119, the second verse I ever memorized. To all perfection I see a limit, says the psalmist, but your word, O Lord, is boundless. 
Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, when Joshua is told by God, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you're going to go and take these people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers to give to them. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on this book of the law day and night. James chapter 1, verse 25, calls the law of God. Are you ready for this? Write this down. The law of perfect liberty. So we need to reorient because God is God. We need to reorient because God is God. He deserves, he deserves our attention on a day like this because he made you. When, when Luke and Lydia were little, one of the ways that we spent the Lord's days was reviewing uh, the Westminster Children's Catechism questions and answers with them. We called it candy-kism. And the reason that we called it candy-kism was because after memorizing so many questions and answers, they knew that they were going to be taken down to Cool Springs Galleria to the candy store. Check, check out this. And, and they could go there and pick out bags of candy from memorandum. And, and listen, if you think, well, David, isn't that bribing them to do things that are obedience to the Lord? Well, yeah, it is. And it works. So, <laughs> so candy-kism. Um, we, we would practice their candy-kism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Question five, why ought you to glorify God? The answer, does anyone know? Because he made me and takes care of me. I distinctly remember being arrested by Luke's answer one night at the dinner table. The way he said, because he made me and takes care of me. Listen, you don't need a PhD in theology to see the profound, programmatic, all-controlling prerogative of God embedded in that simple, childlike answer, God made me and he takes care of me. God is God. The creator gets to command, you see. Now, we, we've struggled with this all the way back to the garden. In fact, as R.C. Sproul says, uh, we committed their cosmic treason against our creator. But the question of God's Sabbath command is in reality a question of God's sovereign character. Uh, this is seen in the command that we keep the Sabbath day holy. Vikor eth hayom hashabath lakadosho. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember one of the most oft-repeated commands in the Bible because we forget the Lord so easily. How do the Ten Commandments begin? With thou shalt and thou shalt not? No. Uh, they, they, they don't begin with the imperatives, do this, don't do that. The indicatives of grace always precede the imperatives of grace. They don't begin with thou shalt and thou shalt not. They begin with I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Underline that word bondage. We see it in Exodus 20 verse 2. In Deuteronomy 5 15, the fourth commandment there is repeated. You shall remember that you were a slave, Moses says, in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was a day of remembrance of God's covenantal faithfulness in saving his people from bondage to sin and death, giving them a hope, and an eschatological future, which according to Jeremiah 29 verse 11 was always intention, his intention to give us a hope and a future. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Kadesh, Kadesh. 
Same word we see in Isaiah 6, 1 to 5, as the seraphim are calling out to one another around the throne of God, right? With two wings they fly, with two they cover their face, two their feet, and they cry out, Kodesh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Same word, God is holy. The Sabbath is about God. The Sabbath is holy in the way that we set apart and treasure the Sabbath is an opportunity to set apart and treasure the Lord. We have to start there with God rather than starting with ourselves and begrudging the idea that God would call for one day in seven or, or even a couple of hours on one day in seven when every, every breath that we draw, every beat of our heart, uh, every, every beat of our heart is an immediate gift from the hand of the Lord. The, the blood coursing through our veins, we're not even thinking about it, is an immediate gift from the hand of God. See, he desires you. He desires you. That, that's why he made the Sabbath for you. Look, if you will, at Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we see what may be for some of us a familiar story. It got Jesus in a lot of trouble, y'all. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. I want you to see how this, how this escalates quickly, how this little story ends here. Mark 2, verse 23, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, 3 verse 1, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on that Sabbath so they might accuse him. Imagine you're that man with a withered hand. You don't want anyone to see it because if they see your withered hand, they know you're a sinner. They know that you are unclean. And so you just keep that hand hidden all the time. You, you feel the, the stigma. You feel the shame of all of it. He said to them, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Can you imagine that man wanting to? Does he dare? And can you imagine the look on his face when he saw his hand? whole and healed? How long has it been since he's seen his hand like that? He was amazed. Worship fills his heart. His hand was restored. The Pharisees went out, however, and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, listen, I know one of the first questions that arises for us has to do with what we can and can't do on the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day. And why can't I go through the drive through at Chick-fil-A and get my chicken nuggets on a Sunday? <laughs> Got to have that Polynesian sauce and something to scoop it up with. And those nuggets make a good scoop for that Polynesian sauce, man. But our first thought ought to be, this is the market day of the soul. Look at all the things that are mine. Look around you, y'all. Look beside you. Look in front of you. 
Look sitting behind you. We belong to each other. All the things are ours this morning. The word preached, the word signified. It's the market day of the soul. Now, I'm just going to share my heart a little bit, a little bit of my family story over the years. This is, this is in no way um, to say, look, you know, look what we've done and you ought to do the same. It, this is just one beggar, as Luther said, Hawkins, Verum, Verson, Dahl, Butler, we're one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. This is true. We're all beggars, right? Um, my family story over the years, I wanted my kids to grow up knowing that the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day was special, set apart. From babies, uh, they knew that whatever we might do recreationally on a Sunday would always ta- take back seat to the prioritized scheduling of being present in covenant community with our covenant family in church every Sunday. If we were on vacation, um, I was on the interwebs looking for the closest PCA church. You know, if we were in Orlando over a Sunday, for instance, uh, we, we might go see Mickey that night and his fireworks display, but we were going to worship the master that morning. Um, even, even then I would explain to them the reason that everyone loves the happiest place on earth at Magic Kingdom is because we were made for more. We were made for a place even happier than the Magic Kingdom. We are designed to desire. We are created to crave. We we are welcome to want. Our our longings are a sign from the Lord that only he can satisfy us. Only our Savior can slake our sin souped. As C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Mere Christianity, 120, 121. This is especially true when we are grieving. I experienced some of that yesterday with my wife in a lady's story. I'll tell you about that in just, just a minute here. But when we're grieving and our hearts are breaking, um, we find ourselves, as C.S. Lewis says, I have the British first edition of C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. And in the final chapter, he says that when, when we're in bereavement, we're grieving, our hearts are breaking, we are walking through the weeping valley, longing to make our way to the land of the Trinity. <laughs> It's an incredible statement. Now, I didn't have to show you this book just to reference that. I just wanted to flex and let you know that I had a British first edition of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> um, my, my point is that the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, the market day of the soul, is a weekly rehearsal for the land of the Trinity, for that day when all our longings will be filled to brimming over for all eternity. I'm, I'm not going to pretend this was always easy, but sports had to take a back seat to the church pew on Sundays. We wanted them to know that worship, fellowship with their brothers and sisters, their fathers and mothers at church was going to be defining for them. From babies, um, for the last 20 years, every Sunday, except for the last year with COVID, now we started up again. From babies, for the last 20 years, every single Sunday after church, we would leave church and go over to a local nursing home to sing hymns and preach a little two-minute sermon. You're thinking, David, if you can preach a two-minute sermon, why are you making us sit here and take this? But that's what I'd do. We'd go sing hymns, preach a little two-minute sermon, and hold the hands of Alzheimer's patients every single Sunday. It's what, it's what, we, would, it's what we would do. Now they, they've called us to start going back. Jim and Barbara Meistead, members of the church here, would, would often uh, go with us for, for several years, and we would just go and minister on the Lord's Day to them. I, I, I wanted my kids to, 
to hear that Sunday is a day of, of celebrating ministry and mercy and the means of grace and covenant community. We, we wanted them to know that the, the Lord's Day was not just us saying something about God. It was God saying something over us and over them. We, we wanted them to hear, keep the Sabbath for the one who is keeping you because you are the called, the loved, and the kept, Jude chapter 1. We, we wanted them to hear the Lord say on that special day, I see you. I see you. My face is lifted up on you. I'm giving you grace. I am giving you shalom as we hear in the benediction of number 6, 24 to 26. We wanted them to hear the Lord say on this special day, I see you. Deuteronomy 32, 10, and you are the apple of my eye, God says. Let's let rest and repentance and rejoicing and renewal of this day. Um, all the realities that it affords us color all the realities of Monday through Saturday. I wanted my kids to look forward to Sundays the way that I looked forward to Friday nights when I was a boy. All the things that would be theirs to have and to explore and to enjoy. And so we need to reorient because God is God, but we also need to rest because Christ is enough. We need to rest as if Christ is enough to provide all of our material needs. Rest Trust in Christ to the point that you are willing to rest from your regular work. Unless your regular work is the work of necessity and mercy, then take another day as your Sabbath. But rest as if taking time from chasing the dollar to spend time with the Lord on this day is not going to lead you to sudden impoverishment. In fact, too often we get going so hard, so overtime, so nonstop that our portfolios are fat and sassy, but our souls become like skin and bones. We live in a 24-7, I'm always on world. If we never draw back from the temporal and focus on the eternal, we start to feel very temporary ourselves and we get this nagging suspicion that our shelf life is drawing nigh. God's people in the Old Testament were to celebrate one day in seven, but also one year in seven. And then every 49th year, the next year, the 50th year, was to be a special Sabbath year as well. In Luke chapter 4, turn over there to Luke chapter 4, Jesus opens his ministry and he goes and he preaches in the synagogue. He walks in and he asks for a scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he opens his mouth and he begins here in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and all spoke of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth and they said is not this Joseph's son the year of the Lord's favor he is quoting here from Isaiah 61 verse 2 but the background is Leviticus chapter 25, where we read in the law of Moses instructions given about the year of Jubilee every seven years as well as every 49th year would give way to a 50th year as a year of Jubilee, a, a market year for soul and body wherein land would be returned to people in, in their inheritance. People would be allowed to return to their ancestral lands. Those indentured would be set free. Generosity and fairness and, and economic transactions would be heightened. The needs of an opportunity to meet the needs of the poor would be abundantly provided for. Life would triumph over poverty and bondage and death, and all would fear the Lord who owned the earth 
and all that is in it. The word in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10, and it shall be, are you ready for this? And it shall be a jubilee for you. It shall be a jubilee for you. The Hebrew word for jubilee is the word yobel, jubel, yobel. The word yobel in the Hebrew means ram's horn. And can you imagine every 50th year when that yobel, when that ram's horn would be blown and, and, and the sound would go out? You can only imagine the very thought among the people of God of life coming up from certain death, hope from poverty, dignity from the dirge. When Jesus preaches in the synagogue in Luke's gospel, he is saying to them, the ram's horn has been blown. The jubilee is here. I am jubilee, Jesus was saying. I am the meeting of every need you could possibly have. I am dignity from the dirge. I am life from poverty. I am freedom from sin and oppression. Israel was to observe the Sabbath because they were to learn that their life, their sustenance, their identity, their salvation would not be by their own supposed righteousness, but would be from the hand of the Lord. Of course, the Old Testament reveals a sad story of how the people of God trusted themselves in other nations and what other nations had and other gods. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter four. We heard it read from a little bit earlier. I wanna give you the context. Hebrews chapter four, and check this out. Hebrews chapter four, beginning at verse one, therefore, the author of Hebrews says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, and I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although his words were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What is the point of this passage? There is rest for you you, beloved. It goes like this. Collapse into Jesus. Rest in Christ to meet not only your material needs, but your spiritual needs. After all, was it not Jesus who says in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Tell me. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. What is this Sabbath rest that we can enter into in Hebrews chapter four. It is a resting from our own efforts, a refuge from our fears, a salve to sin sore souls. This rest is the one of whom we read just two chapters earlier in Hebrews chapter two, who came to be our elder brother, not ashamed to call you his little sister, not ashamed to call you his little brother, Hebrews 2, verses 11 and following, is the one who came to destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of us who through our fear of death were held in lifelong bondage. <laughs> he is the ram whose horns were caught in a thicket of thorns, Genesis 22:13, so that he could come be our atoning sacrifice. That's how the horn ultimately is blown. 
there is freedom from death through the death of the sacrificial lamb. You see in Genesis, when Abraham looked and saw a ram with his head caught in a thicket of thorns, that would not be the last time that a male lamb found his head in a thicket, a crown of thorns. And he lifts us out of the slavery of sin and death. We need to rest because Christ is enough. We also need to realize the resurrection changes everything. When we turn to the New Testament, we see that the resurrection of our Savior on the first day of the week, John chapter 20, verse 1, was paradigmatic. In fact, that's why the disciples of Christ all begin to worship on the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Revelation 1, verse 10. B.B. Warfield was not a great blues guitar player, but uh, an old Princeton theologian who lived from 1851 to 1921, Princeton Theological Seminary has an article entitled Foundations of the Sabbath and the Word of God. Listen to this, this is incredible. Among the changes in his external form, which it thus underwent was a change in the day of observance. No injury was thus done to the Sabbath as it was commended to the Jews, rather a new greatness was brought to it. Our Lord too, following the example of his father, when he had finished the work which it had been given him to do, rested on the Sabbath in the peace of his grave. But he had work yet to do. And when on the first day of the week, which was the first day of a new era, the era of salvation dawned, he rose from the Sabbath rest of the grave and made all things new. Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on resurrection morn. And why should this not have carried with it, as it certainly seems to have carried with it, the substitution for the day of the God of Israel who brought his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, the day of the Lord Jesus who brought them out of a worse bondage than that of Egypt by a greater deliverance, a deliverance of which that from Egypt was but a type. From Sabbath to Lord's Day, from Saturday to Sunday, the resurrection defines not just Easter Sunday, but every Lord's day. The sepulcher could not hold him, so Sunday crowns him king of life. And in Ephesians chapters one and two, we find that Jesus died and was buried. He was raised and is ascended and seated. And we read that you were dead, you've been raised, you've been seated. And we read there that that same immeasurably great power that God exerted in raising Christ from the dead is at work in you now. Resurrection power is coursing through our veins. We are people of the resurrection already, having been brought from death to life, from darkness to light. Resurrection power defines you so that just as it had to with Jesus, the grave is going to have to give up on you and you will be raised bodily. Think about it. Every Sunday we gather to worship, y'all. Listen, every Sunday we gather to worship. And this is why you don't want to miss church on a Sunday. Every time we gather to worship is a testimony in advance to our own graves that they will have no lasting sting. It's a testimony to our own, you being here right now, you are testifying to your grave in advance. You will have no lasting victory over me. Jesus is gonna raise me bodily from the grave. That's why I tell you so often, Christian burial is not the disposal of anything. We dispose of stuff we don't need and don't like. Christian burial is a deposit of something precious for safekeeping. It's a deposit of, of something precious for safekeeping, a resurrection deposit, because Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, has promised to make a resurrection withdrawal. 
and that burial ground gives way and becomes resurrection ground. And every cemetery turns into a sanctuary when the saints are raised to new life and their bodies rejoined with their soul at the express command of that glorious grave robber, Jesus Christ. And we live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Sunday is about. No wonder John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder the Greatest Hymn It's Ever Been Written, also wrote this hymn safely through another week. He lived from 1725 to 1807, safely through another week. Listen to this. May thy gospel's joyful sound conquer sinners, comfort saints. May the fruits of grace abound, bring relief for all complaints. Thus may all our Sabbaths prove till we join the church above. The resurrection was paradigmatic. It was also programmatic in that it set the course for celebration. Acts chapter 2, 42, the disciples gathered for the breaking of bread, for the fellowship, prayer, and devotion to the apostles' teaching. Christian worship is a covenant renewal service in which all the things, all the things we could want and need are here on this market, day of the soul, spread out before us. That, that's why we're told in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, not to skip church. The author of Hebrews says to people who were skipping church because they were afraid of persecution and being caught and imprisoned and killed, he said, do not neglect the gathering on the Lord's day as some are accustomed to doing, but all the more as you see the day approaching, spur one another on to love and good deeds. We need what the Reformed tradition calls the means of grace, the word, the word preached, where Jesus tells us who he is, what he has done, is doing, and ever will do for us. Listen, one of the most crucial needs you and I have every Sunday is to have our hearts freshly evangelized, to have our hearts newly good newsed, if I can say it that way. The word and, and prayer. Prayer, Charles Spurgeon says, is the natural outgushing of a soul in communion with Jesus. Yesterday, Diane and I spent time with a dear saint, 84, was it 86? 86. Betty Stewart, uh, she's Hank Stewart. Some of y'all know Hank and Tracy Stewart here in town. She lost her husband last week, Doug, Doug Stewart. And we went over to see her and take her some cookies that I baked and um, actually, they came from Puffy Muffin. I couldn't get the sticker off, so I had to go ahead and tell her they were from Puffy Muffin. But we took her some cookies, and we sat there for an hour and a half. We went over to minister to her. And for an hour and a half, she ministered to us and talked to us about how being in church every Sunday, being in the Word every day, a life of prayer was sustaining her. And as we were about to leave, she said, hey, I want to show you something. And I asked her if I could show y'all because I took a video of it. Check this out. Yeah, would you look at that? Oh. Let's go to the 91st Psalm. That's my favorite Psalm. Mm. I live out of the 91st Psalm every day. I take my family with me. Here it is. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Look at that. I live out of here every day. She took me to the 91st Psalm, and she had wept over that Psalm, over that page so many times that she had taken packing tape and put it over that page to laminate the page of her Bible that had the 91st Psalm on it. She said, let's go to the 91st Psalm. She said, I take my family there every day, meaning she prayed the Psalms over her family. She said, I live out of the 91st Psalm. Trust me, you live out of the 91st Psalm Howie, you live out of the Bible, and guess what? You live, you live 
I would invite you, but I am willing to grovel if need be. Get into the word like this 86-year-old lady has given herself to the word and prayer every day. And when sorrow hits, you're carried through it by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We need the word, we need prayer, we need the sacraments, we need baptism, that initiating sign, God's cleansing gospel pictured in water, God's shower of grace. And notice my emphasis on God. It is the New Testament post-resurrection Sunday fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision, Colossians, 12 verses, uh, Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12. And baptism, like circumcision, is not first and foremost an outward sign of my inward faith. Baptism, like circumcision, is first and foremost an outward sign of God's outward faithfulness to his covenant promises to us and to our children. We need the Lord's Supper. The Sabbath command was grounded in creation, not Sinai, in Genesis before Exodus. In other words, the creation pattern God set by resting on the Sabbath, on the, on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, was so that Adam would likewise rest from his labors on the seventh day and fix his heart on eschatological hope on the future eschatological goal of creation of which the goodness of the Garden of Eden was but a foretaste. And what we have here in front of us is a foretaste, um, an eschatological appetizer spread out, stacked up on these tables before us, the rehearsal dinner of the great marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, verse 7. And we come to this table, and when we come to this table, you know what we're doing? We come this far, but we're saying together with one another, we're going to go a little bit further. We're gonna go a little bit further down the road together and someday we're gonna see the skyline of that big city, the new Jerusalem. Some way we're gonna go there together. We're gonna to see that big city by the grace of God. But until then, your jubilee host, Jesus, your jubilee, your deliverance, your jubilee host is here ready to serve you this morning. Here's what he says in Psalm 81 verse 10. Have you ever heard this verse? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth and I will fill it. Have you been lost and alone in some house of bondage of your own creation? Come to the one, Isaiah 61, verse one, who has good news for the poor, sigh for the brokenhearted, liberty for the captives, who clothes you, Isaiah 61, 10, with the robe of his own righteousness. You wanna get in on this? You wanna get in on this? Maybe you're saying, David, I have wondered so long, there's no way I can afford to get in on this. Jesus is not gonna take me. No way I can afford to get in on this. Well, you know what, you're right. There is no way you can afford to get in on this. But there's no way you can afford not to get in on this. That's why we read that there is good news for you in Isaiah 55, verses one to three. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and you who are thirsty, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your wages for that which is not bread and your money for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in the richest of food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, beloved. 
The Jubilee is here. His name is Jesus. And he says to you, today is the market day of the soul. It is time to dance to that weekly rhythm of realizing everything you could need and want. All the things are spread out on the table before you. Gracious Father, we come now and we pray in the strong name of Jesus as we make our ways to this table. Would you make your way to our hearts by the power of your spirit? Would you take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and do something extraordinary in us? Help us to believe the gospel afresh. Help us to trust and cling to the Lord Jesus, who is more than enough. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.